If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think of both Versailles and Brest as having in common that they are, if you like, good pieces gone bad. They are disastrous derailments of liberal projects of peacemaking. That was Adam Tooze discussing the peace treaties that followed the First World War. I used to say to myself very often, boy, you've got to live up to your cap badge. That's what you've got to live up to. No matter how afraid you are, you've got to live up to your cap badge. And that was First World War veteran William Collins describing his experiences of being part of the Royal Army Medical Corps. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. We're available in all good newsagents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest offers. And we have many digital editions, including for the iPad, the iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. For details of our digital formats, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. Now, this week's episode is something of a First World War special, as we approach the anniversary of the war's outbreak. We begin with an interview with Adam Tews. Adam is a British historian who is currently based in the US, where he is Barton M. Briggs, Professor of History at Yale University. He won the Wolfson Prize for his 2006 book, The Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy. And he's now followed that up with a new book, The Deluge, which explores the legacy of the First World War from 1916 until the onset of the Great Depression in the 1930s. Adam paid a brief visit to the UK a couple of weeks ago, and I was fortunate enough to have a chance to speak to him about his new book. I began by asking why he had chosen to open the deluge in the middle rather than at the start or end of the First World War. I think this is based on the idea that the war changes character. So it's often said that... um, 
the war begins uh, as a European war, but it ends as a, a world war. And really 1916 is the moment where it seems to me that the war opens out beyond the immediate clash of the great European powers and becomes a world war in the sense that from that moment on, it's really clear that the decisive power, the, the power that holds the balance and will determine the outcome, uh, is no longer European, but the United States. If one wanted to answer your other question, I mean, why not start a book which is really about the impact of the war and its aftermath? Why start it so early? The answer is, I think, a, a question of perspective, which is that there are real risks in starting the discussion of the aftermath of the war uh, too late. Um, if you really want to understand, I think, the deepest tension that really tore the uh, allies apart, what we call allies colloquially, and, and uh, that in a sense is the heart of the problem, the relationship between the Entente, the British and the French and the Italians and the Japanese and the United States on the other hand. If we really want to understand that, we need to not, say, kick off with January 1918 and Wilson's 14 points but actually recognise the moment of tension that arises from America's neutrality. So really the, the book starts at the point at which America becomes essential to the story and yet is, no, is not yet engaged. Its place in the war is not yet already determined. And it's that indeterminacy and the uncertainty that that, that, that generates, which is really the organising theme of the, of the book. Yeah, one thing actually on that I found really interesting was I hadn't realised quite how reliant Britain was on American finance. And the possibility that you suggest is that potentially America could really have completely pulled the rug away from Britain and France by preventing that flow of capital. I mean, how close do you think Britain was to losing that money and potentially losing the war? The financial situation of Britain is really very serious by their own accounts. So at various points between the autumn of 1916 and the summer of 1917, when the financial problem is solved by means of the Liberty Loans, the British at various points estimate they are within months, weeks, and at one point in the summer of 1917, within hours of defaulting, not on the entire volume of debt, but one or other critical debt obligation that becomes due. And as we've now know from the financial crisis, you only need to miss a payment on one single debt for your entire credit rating to be shot and for the entire mountain of debt to be become unstable. The qualifier, of course, in this is that it is possible to fight a war without financial assistance from the outside. So when we say that Britain is dependent on the United States, what we're really saying is Britain is dependent for the way it is currently attempting to fight the war on the United States. In other words, to a degree cushioning the home front, not making the demands on the British civilian population that the Germans did, enabling the war therefore to be fought over a long time horizon and maintaining the political stability of the home front. And this is not an incidental question because after all, World War I is decided in Russia, it's decided in Europe really by the stability of the home front. It's an absolutely essential precondition. So in that sense, to say that it's politically important rather than an absolute necessity is not to downplay its importance. It's simply to be clearer about what it is. The, the ability of the Britain to, to draw resources not just from the United States, but its empire is crucial to the political sustainability of the British war effort. And yes, to take up your other point, this does mean that the United States holds the conduct of the war, the fate of the war in its hands. 
And furthermore, we know that the Americans knew this. And very shortly after his re-election, in fact, even before his re-election in November 1916, Woodrow Wilson begins to plan to use this power. And at the end of November 1916, has the Federal Reserve Board, the American Central Bank, declare that it's no longer in the interest of the US economy for further money to flow from Wall Street into British and French loans, effectively downgrading, if you like, and we again know now how serious that is, downgrading the assets of the two largest 19th century financial centres of the world, uh, London and Paris. And this sends a shock through the British and French war effort. There is desperation in London and Paris over the winter of 1916-1917. And conversely, um, the German embassy in Washington signals frantically to Berlin, saying, don't you understand the significance of this? This is indeed, as you were saying, the um, Americans threatening to uh, end uh, the Entente war effort as we know it. And uh, surely Berlin ought to draw uh, conclusions from this. They, they don't, and we, we know how things turned out. But there is a real possibility of the war being throttled to a conclusion over the, over the winter of 1916-1917. So from that point of view, how big a blunder do you think it was that Germany resumed its U-boat war at that point and essentially brought the United States into the war against them? Oh, this only highlights even more how spectacular blunder that is. In in terms of the world historic decisions in the 20th century, it is one of the great catastrophes of political judgment and of military judgment. Um, and it's based, ironically, on a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, the Germans are convinced that because uh, America is a capitalist democracy, because American politicians are craven slaves of American business, uh, they are bound, basically, to enter the war on the side of the British and the French because America has invested so much. And, and what they simply refuse to take seriously is the possibility, demonstrated in actual fact by Wilson's actions, that the American president might be resisting this trend towards a inextricable entanglement of the United States in the Entente war effort. And they act, as it were, on the assumption that America's entry into the war is inevitable and in doing so make it inevitable. Wilson is, is himself is appalled and horrified by the corner that they're boxing him into. And really, even after the U-boats, he breaks off relations, but he doesn't push to war. It's only the Zimmerman note, in other words, the flagrant German effort to enlist Mexico and Japan in a coalition against the United States that really forces in hands and make, makes his position completely, completely uh, insupportable. And again, the Germans... The Zimmerman note is so implausible that almost all pro-German opinion in America is convinced it's a fabrication of British propaganda. So it was sort of so harebrained as to be deniable. But instead of denying it, the German foreign secretary goes to the Reichstag and publicly admits that, yes, they did invite Mexico to attack the United States in exchange for Texas and New Mexico. Um, and at that point, really, uh, Wilson is left with no, with no option. So there's a, there's a sort of a willful spiral of, uh, of aggressive acts which, which uh, reflect a deep, deep misunderstanding on the part of the German leadership uh, of this crisis. And that, in turn, I argue, leads on to a kind of mounting, rolling crisis of politics in Imperial Germany um, in 1917 and 1918. So we can see the beginnings of the revolution of the autumn of 1918 on the horizons at this moment. Do you think the way that the war ended had a big impact on the post-war Settlement. Do you think had Germany been utterly defeated, that would have changed the shape of 
of the war? Would it be armistice made a difference to how it all turned out? I mean, these kind of counterfactuals are really hard, of course, to definitively judge. But certainly the logic of my argument suggests that it is indeed absolutely decisive. And those who were free to express their opinions about this, so notably the Republican opposition in the US, who face Wilson directly and compete with him in democratic elections in the in the midterms, congressional midterms in the fall of 1918, they are completely convinced that um, it was a disaster that the American army didn't march triumphantly to, to Berlin. The British and the French probably think the same thing, but... Lloyd George and Clemenceau, I'm thinking of, but are constrained not to say so publicly. And of course, it is they who've borne most of the casualties of the war. And so the idea of extending the war into 1919 is not attractive, and particularly so since, of course, it would be the Americans that would win the war in 1919. So one of the things which would have been different about a war finished with an unconditional surrender forced by military victory is likely that it would have extended into 1919 and then the influence of American of the doughboys would have been much, much greater than it actually was. But it's, uh, for me, that is absolutely crucial. And and beyond the mere fact of, of unconditional surrender or not, it's in fact the remarkable extent to which Germany, the Germans, the incoming democratic uh, parties in Germany who take power in October 1918 in collaboration with Wilson are actually able to shape the terms in which the peace is discussed. So the politics of the peace is very dramatically shaped by the fact that they negotiated armistice and concluded on Wilsonian terms. And from then on in, really, the Germans are in a position where they can demand, ask for, insist upon a liberal peace, which Britain and France are not willing, for a variety of different reasons, to give them in the sense that at least the Germans expected. I know your book has focused quite a lot on the the peace treaties around the time of the war, things like Brest-Litovsk and then the Treaty of Versailles, both of which have been very heavily criticised by Mm. historians. Do you think Mm. that, that view of them is fair? Well, I think the treatment of Versailles has at least been more multifaceted than the treatment of Brest-Litovsk. I mean, that's the really remarkable thing. And the significance of Brest-Litovsk now is really confronting us very directly because Brest-Litovsk negotiations are the first moment in international history at which uh, the modern Ukraine is recognised as an independent entity. And so this is, I view it, as the first effort to shape a peace in the East that doesn't accept the boundaries of the multi-ethnic authoritarian Tsarist empire as the norm. And to that extent, really a harbinger, a forerunner of what we now are defending, namely uh, a territorial settlement quite like that which emerges after 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that for me was really the sort of first head-turning moment, one of the first in writing this book, was to actually just look at the map of Brest-Litovsk, Europe, of Eastern Europe, with an independent Ukraine, an independent or a sketch of an independent Belarus, independent Baltic states, an independent Poland, and realise this is an awful lot like what we take for granted today. So then what exactly is the difference? Well, then we generally assume, of course, the difference is that these states are just puppets of, say, imperial German power. These are just sort of outlines on the map that the Germans are going to hegemonise and control. And then, of course, you say to yourself, well, the Baltic states today are under the umbrella of NATO and the EU. Uh, Many people in the Ukraine would like to end up in precisely that kind of relationship. So the differences aren't quite as extreme. And then when you actually begin to look at the politics of the Brest peace, you suddenly discover that things 
things are really very different from what you might imagine. Because the entire negotiations of Brest-Litovsk were like the negotiations of Versailles, framed by liberal premises. So the Soviets, the Bolsheviks and the Germans and their allies, that's the Austrians and the Turks, sit down to negotiate, the Bulgarians as well, sit down to negotiate on what are liberal terms. In other words, um, self-determination, no annexations. Uh, and no reparations. And so then the puzzle becomes how on earth does the actual rapacious imperialist peace, so-called, of Brest-Litovsk emerge? But I think of both Versailles and Brest as having in common that they are, if you like, good pieces gone bad. They are disastrous derailments of liberal projects of peacemaking. And this isn't out of some sort of idealism, but that when you sit down to think in the early 20th century about how to make a durable international order, you are sort of out of necessity driven towards liberal premises. And so the question then is, why Why does it go wrong? Not uh, how does sort of imperialist ill will uh, necessarily result in a disaster? So you talked about the idea of a kind of durable post-war mm. order, there's a couple of different arguments, but some people say that it was already fatally flawed or was bound to collapse. Mm-hmm. Then I've heard other people would say that without Wall Street crash, it could have survived and actually wasn't that weak. Which, which sort of camp do you fall into? Definitely in the latter. I mean, I, I think that both Brest and Versailles are potentially durable pieces. They need to be enforced. This is a war in which there was a victory. So when Wilder Wilson initially imagines how he would like to restructure the world, he imagines a sort of tabula rasa resulting from peace without victory inside. In other words, no winners, no losers, a sort of sterilisation and neutralisation of European power by its mutual stalemating. That isn't what happens. And so the world that results from the war, the victory of the Germans, the central powers in the East and the allies in the in the West is indeed one shaped by victory and defeat. And to make a peace like that durable requires enforcement mechanisms. We know that only too well from after 1945, when after all, Germany is subject to what, division and massive infringements of its sovereignty and tied radically into international organisations. So our only good examples of durable pieces are ones which have very heavy duty enforcement mechanisms. And those enforcement mechanisms have to be in place. And what I think happens in the 1920s, they become progressively attenuated to the point at which the major enforcement mechanism is actually economic. And that is then what makes Versailles so vulnerable to the Great Depression. Um, So it's really the specific quality of the sort of order that emerges in the course of the 1920s that makes it vulnerable to that particular type of crisis. Well, one of the big themes that comes out in your book is the emergence of the United States. How much does the First World War change its role on the global stage, do you think? Oh, it's a, it's a radical shift. I mean, the, the factoid that's commonly cited, and it's very telling, is that Britain is the first old world power to open an embassy in Washington, D.C., and it does it in 1893. So throughout the 19th century, the United States, the capital of the United States, what we now are used to thinking of the centre of world power, didn't warrant a full diplomatic representation by anyone. And 20 years later, 25 years later, the United States is the hub of, of world power, whether openly so or, or not. It's, it's clearly the centre of all calculation. Having said that, the first international conference, the first major government conference of the great powers to be hosted in the US capital is in 1921, in November 1921 at the Naval Conference. So it's in the span of really barely more than a generation that you see the rise of the US from a sort of disreputable Wild West periphery of the global system 
torn by civil war, huge unresolved conflict within the United States, to being what we take for granted ever since, namely the centre of a sort of a triumphant capitalist democracy. And the shock of that rise is really the, the theme of this book, how everyone around the world adjusts to, to this sudden ascent, this sudden change in the parameters. Because it's not as though... The other thing to get one's head around, I think, is that is the different quality of American power. Because people speak as though, say, Victorian Britain had been the world leader in the 19th century, and now people ruminate about whether China will be the world power. But the quality of American dominance from the middle of World War I onwards is different from anything that we have seen before or saw before uh, and I think are likely to see afterwards. There is a particular quality, a compact combination of political authority in the form of a sort of democratic mission, military power in the emergence of the US during World War I as a preeminent naval power, and then, of course, from the middle of the 20th century as the preeminent air power. And linking those two things then to preeminence in economic, uh, industrial and financial power, and a geostrategic location second to none, uh, stride both the Pacific and the Atlantic, in the form not of a rangy, extended, disarticulated global empire like Britain had commanded, but a compact continental nation state with hundreds of millions of people. That combination is really what makes America central. And the crises which it then can take advantage of to assert its position. So it's as though all the European powers had sort of committed collective suicide. And then out of that suicide emerges this uniquely well-positioned entity to command global power. It's that conjuncture which I think marks the US as, as really distinctive and is just head-turning contemporaries you can see them trying to figure out is this like the British Empire no it's not really is it like the Habsburg Empire of you know Philip II well sort of but not really quite like that either what is it exactly will it be part of the League of Nations no it stands outside the League of Nations but has a veto power over it so it's even more powerful than all of the other countries in the world combined mm, yes perhaps there's a there's a sort of uncertainty about quite what kind of a beast this is and that's what I think we that we really have to grapple with and what also then produces such radical responses. So there's a sort of conformity that comes out of this. But then, as I argued in my last book on Nazi Germany, there's also a radical resistance that comes out of this. Because if you're going to take this power on, it's quite unlike any other challenge that anyone has ever had to mount before. It's not like Imperial Germany taking on Victorian or Edwardian Britain or Germany v France. This is a challenge of a completely different order. What did America understand as its role in the world mm. at this point? Or did it even think of itself like that? Well, I think one shouldn't generalise. In the, in the book, I, broadly speaking, distinguish between two different visions. Once upon a time, it was commonplace to distinguish between a sort of internationalism and an isolationism. My own view is that really the United States political elite is far too aware of the new power that it's coming into for isolationism, pure and simple, to be at all popular. Amongst, amongst the sort of forward and most influential elements of the American political class. But really, it's different brands of internationalism, different ways of asserting American power in this world, which America is going to be the centre of. And I engage in a sort of 
potentially quite controversial reversal of the standard assumption in that, generally speaking, Woodrow Wilson is seen as the great internationalist president proposing the League of Nations and so on. And then his opponents in Congress, the Republicans, are seen as, quote unquote, isolationists. And to me, it's rather the other way around in that though Wilson is clearly an internationalist and that he is forced to lead America into the war and does propose the League of Nations, I see that as motivated deep down by a desire to keep America radically separate. So if he has a vision of the United States in the world, it's really in a highly exalted sense of detached moral leadership. America's power will be exercised by its difference, not by its engagement by the way in which it uses almost exclusively means of soft power. Um, so culture, morals and economics rather than the heavy handed tools of especially land based militarism. So the idea of America having a large standing army would be terrifying for somebody, anathema to somebody like Wilson. On the other hand, the Republican leadership is in many ways rather more open to the idea of a more typical, a more classic type of engagement by means of alliance. You find people like Habert Lodge and Teddy Roosevelt by the end of World War I openly talking about America's affinity for Britain and the French Republic, a kind of a NATO uh, avant lettre in a sense, a, a North Atlantic sense of a common ideological project. And this, of course, is music to the ideas of both London and Paris, who love this vision of being able to harness American power to their own future. Actually, coming on to that, how did some of the other former global leading powers respond to the rise of the United States? Did they feel threatened by this? Mm. So the, the argument of of the book is really that, that it's bipolar. And there's a really slightly schizophrenic quality to politics throughout this period. Because on the one hand, the low risk, and in some sense, the rational response, given the might which America is clearly able to mobilise, is simply to conform and to find a niche for yourself in a world ordered by the Americans. And since the Americans aren't making territorial demands, since their demands in economic terms with regard to the empires come largely in the form of the demand for an open door, in other words, equal access for the Americans, this seems like a, a world that one might be able to accommodate oneself to. And Germany, for instance, um, which after the war is stripped of its colonies, the leading politicians there, the leading makers of foreign policy, envision a role for themselves as sort of the best pupil in the American class, as a kind of obedient partner. I mean, in a sense, in anticipation of the role that the Federal Republic and indeed Japan has played since World War II. And one can see the same in Japan. I mean, where just sizing up the size of the two countries, the Japanese are highly astute and realistic for, in many respects in their political calculations. They realise the scale of the challenge they're faced with and, and realise the opportunities offered by collaboration with Wall Street, for instance, and are also not, uh, for many of them, uh, averse to the idea of absorbing ideas of democratisation. And Japanese introduced the full manhood suffrage in the course of the 1920s. They can see a place for themselves as Japan as a cooperative player in a kind of global modernity in which America is the, the organiser and also the underwriter. It provides security for everyone. The alternative is, is radical challenge. Uh, and this you see across the spectrum. Occasional florid outbursts from a deeply frustrated conservative in Britain. There's even moments of Churchill losing his temper with the Americans in the 1920s and saying we should go back onto the offensive. 
very rarely in France, it has to be said, given their dependence on Britain and America in defending themselves against Germany, very rarely and very reluctantly in France. And in that case, it expresses itself not as aggression towards the Americans, but aggression against the Germans. So when the French feel as though they've been isolated by Britain and the United States, their response is to preemptively nail down the Germans. But it's really in... Germany, in Italy, in Japan, and one way of reading the Soviet Union would be in these terms as well, that you see the radical reaction, which is to say, if we accept America's vision, there is no future for us as an autonomous historical actor. If your standard of what it means to be a meaningful nation is to have true freedom, true autonomy, uh, this new American world is not going to give you that. And so you get these radical supercharged nationalisms, Japanese imperialism, fascism in Italy, national socialism in Germany, which act centrally on this question of whether or not you will be able to build a truly meaningful national existence for yourself. And that can only be achieved through massive aggression and hugely high-risk gambles of attack, somehow to take advantage of the sleepy lethargy, the indolence, the inefficiency, the corruption of the big, powerful democracies uh, before their economic weight becomes too overwhelming. So do you see regimes a bit like Nazi Germany, even potentially Stalin's Soviet Union, as a response in some way to American power? In the case of Nazi Germany, that was the argument of my, of my last book, Wages of Destruction. And in a sense, the book that I'm launching now is a prequel to that uh, and a generalisation. So yes, I mean, Hitler, if you read his famous second book, uh, the book he finished in the late 1920s, he's completely explicit about it. He says, in fact, that the task of National Socialism is to gird the loins of the German race for a final struggle with the United States. You see exactly the same thing in Japan uh, already from the turn of the century, because for the Japanese, the confrontation with the US across the Pacific and in China and in Manchuria is immediate and they confront it straight away. And Japanese politics oscillates between cooperation and, and confrontation with the US. And again, they're extremely aware of the apocalyptic risks it would involve running uh, in making a challenge to the US. And then you develop sort of supercharged rationalizations of your own nationalism to, to justify this. It becomes a sort of do or die kind of logic. Uh, Italian fascism's ambitions were never quite on this scale, but its confrontation with Britain, for instance, in the Mediterranean has this same logic. In other words, the peace, the League of Nations, this is all for the rich, satiated, saturated powers, whereas Mussolini likes to think of Italy as a proletarian nation which has to assert itself against the rich oligarchs who've already established control. And there is indeed, in the Soviet Union as well, a strand of thinking, notably around Trotsky, with whom I begin the book, who see uh, the United States as the obvious future hegemon of global capitalism. And one of the arguments between Trotsky and Stalin, one of the lesser known aspects of that argument, is precisely how important the United States is for communist strategy and future, and whether therefore the arenas of communist insurgency are going to be in the old world in Europe or whether the big game is really going to be played out in the struggle with the United States in places like China, where the United States is a crucial presence in the calculation of all of the people trying to struggle over the future of the Chinese revolution, really from the beginning, from 1911 onwards. So America comes out of the first of all in a very strong position, world leader. Does it then fail? Does it fail to maintain its international order? Can we blame American leaders for the descent into war in the 1930s? 
Well, in some sense, yes. And uh, that is one way of reading uh, the evidence and the argument of this book. But what I wanted to do was to go further than that. And first of all, to get the right, as it were, yardstick for what failure actually is in this case, and then also give some sort of explanation as to why it is that the Americans fall short. By yardstick, I simply mean the point that this challenge the Americans face is new, radically new. It shouldn't be imagined as a sort of relay race in which the British have the baton of world leadership that they have manfully carried through the 18th and 19th century and then exhausted, handed on to the Americans who drop the baton. That, I think, is is a grandizing notion for the Brits. It's sort of lovely to imagine ourselves as part of this succession. But really, the questions, the challenges facing any power facing the problem of world leadership and world order after World War I are immensely greater than anything that had been faced in the 19th century. We're talking about direct entanglements of the state budgets of all of the leading countries. It's a Euro era kind of style type of problem. We're talking about the aftermath of a war which had cost more lives than any war in, in modern history. So there's a disastrous situation. And what we're really what we're really saying when we say America failed is that, as it were, failed to rise to the a totally radical uh, new challenge. Um, so why? That's the next question. And I think why or why does the America fail to rise to this challenge? The simple answer is that the American state is not a state like the consolidated nation states of Britain and France. It's a it's a tiny vestige of American federal government in the beginning of the 20th century. It consumes perhaps two or three percent of GDP. It has virtually no debt. It has very little military power outside the Navy. There's no income tax until 1913. There's no central bank until 1913. America is a relatively recently created federal Polity, which in the 1860s, furthermore, went through an absolutely epic existential crisis, which tore its political class, class apart in proportional terms, cost as many lives as World War I did, and is still in the recovery phase from that traumatic experience. Woodrow Wilson's cabinet are the first group of Southerners to govern the United States in more than a generation since the Civil War, in almost two generations since the Civil War. They think of America as itself under construction, as a project, if you you like. And to my mind, the deepest imperative, the deepest reason why Wilson wants to stay out of the war is he wants to finish this process of building God's own country uncontaminated by the problems of the Europeans. America has problems enough. So this idea that Europe has of the United States as descending from the outside as the great saviour that then fails to show up underestimates the challenges that the Americans themselves face. And it's really, to my mind, only the Great Depression and then the challenge of Pearl Harbor that transforms the American state to such an extent that by 1945, it really is able to grasp this unprecedented challenge of global governance in a way that it previously had not been able to and no power previously had been able to do. Your book ends not long after the crisis at Wall Street. At that point, do you think this conflagration that came was inevitable? Was something going to have to break? I think really what we see from the early 1930s onwards is a repetitive series of challenges of an increasingly radical type. And so conflict is not just inevitable, it's it's already happening. I mean, if we move away from a Eurocentric view, after all, the struggle in China has really been going on with increasing violence from the late 20s onwards. And uh, in 1931, uh, there is direct uh, Japanese intervention and the separation of this gigantic territory of Manchuria, the size of several European countries from China, and the establishment of a new Japanese regime there. 
And then, of course, we have in Europe, on the one hand, the Spanish Civil War, and uh, again in Asia, the escalation in 1937 in the full-on Japanese invasion of China. So it's not even a question of predicting something that's inevitable. We actually see it, literally the weekend on which the gold standard fails, Britain leaves the gold standard and the financial crisis begins to really show its full seriousness. It's literally the same weekend on which a bunch of maverick Japanese soldiers stage a coup in Manchuria. So these are things that are simultaneous. The real question is whether anything could have been done, as it were, to contain the escalating violence. And there I think the damage done by the Great Depression is, is really sort of finally confirms the fundamental problem that's been there ever since that moment in which Wilson tries to end the war from the outside rather than, as it were, joining Britain and France, namely the disunity between the potentially stabilising, shall we say, democracies of the West, the failure of an alliance between the British Empire, the French Empire and the United States is the one anchor around which stability could have been built. And if that is in place, then that changes the choices for everyone else. When that transparently breaks apart, then it becomes reasonable almost. Uh, The terms of the calculus change to such an extent that it becomes plausible for aggressive elements in Germany, Japan and Italy, and indeed in the Soviet Union as well, to start pushing for alternative policies. Up to that point, right-thinking, real politicians in Japan, in Germany and Italy could always just simply say, no, the battalions are with them, the big battalions are with the West. It would be suicidal, regardless of the morals, the politics, the ethics of this. It would be suicidal to engage in a course on confrontation. When you see the kind of shambles to which the liberal world has reduced itself between 1931 and 1933, that's no longer so evident. Coming on to looking after the Second World War, do you think the reason why the situation was so much better after the Second World War was because the West stayed together through things like NATO and Marshall Plan and the UN. Was that the crucial difference? Yes, to that list of the UN, NATO, the Marshall Plan, I would simply add the European community. The project of European integration harnessed to those global structures that multi-layered architecture of liberal order, that commitment to link security with politics, emphatically democratic politics, and economic uh, intervention and economic stabilisation insofar as we have lessons to learn from history and a sense of what works. It's that formula and the concerted effort to organise that formula that appears to be the magic bullet. I mean, this is, you know, to give hostages to fortune. And the US is pivotal to coordinating this. The role that the United States plays between 1940s and the 1950s, this really extraordinary creative period of American statescraft, which is very difficult to avoid being nostalgic for the open mindedness with which the State Department, the Treasury, the US military embrace a spectacular range of new roles and do so with a, one has to say, I think, a greater degree of sophistication and open mindedness and a frankly a pluralism, openness to a variety of different politics than we have seen in recent decades is is remarkable. And again, it reflects America's own traumatic experience. America comes to the world as a hegemon in the 1940s, but by the sort of triumphal standards that we are used to as a, as a fairly humble hegemon in the sense that they know only too well the crisis that they themselves went through in the Great Depression, the New Deal, and then the shock of the Japanese attack and their apparent impotence in the face of that in 1941. This is not the sort of brash, self-confident, know-it-all America that we have seen rather too much of of late. This is a much more self-reflective, self-critical agent of power.
So we've talked a lot about some of the big countries involved in this story. What about the individual participants? Has your research changed your views on any of those? Yes, I say it really has. I mean, one of the great surprises for me about researching and writing this book was the way in which the classic trio of Versailles, the big three so-called, changed under my hands and as I was writing. So the, the conventional story of Versailles is one in which you have Wilson, the priggish American idealist, presiding over the hard-bitten, uh, do-or-die patriot Clemenceau and the highly cynical democratic operator Lloyd George, who's really just out to maximise votes by means of bringing home a a delicious, gigantic reparations settlement. And there's this very cynical, quite bleak view of the failures of democratic politics that you see there. And in researching the book, I ended up with a very different perspective on all three of them. Um, most uh, radically to start with, with Wilson, in the sense that Wilson emerges as a much more radical thinker of American power, much less an uh, internationalist than a flat-out nationalist, somebody committed to asserting America's dominance in world affairs. That, in turn, threw a new light on Clemenceau and Lloyd George, who appear in really rather different terms. You, you simply have to remember the biographies of these men, which are very dramatic. Um, Clemenceau, in particular... Uh, is born in the 1840s. He sees his father almost carted off to prison colony by the new dictator Napoleon III. He himself spends time in jail in 1862 as a radical Republican dissident. He's perhaps, without question, the most radical figure represented at Versailles. And to my mind, this throws into question the entire image of somebody like Clemenceau as nothing more than a hard-bitten nationalist. When we say that Clemenceau is in the business of defending France, what we need to add is that he's in the business of defending the French Republic. And for him, what that means is, above all, seizing the opportunity to anchor France's security, not so much on the humbling of Germany, though that's obviously important given Germany's track record, but above all on the alliance with Britain and the United States, not just because they're the most powerful states, but because they are, in Clemenceau's mind, politically congenial. It was the French who gave the Americans the Statue of Liberty, after all, to celebrate the fact that they were the two biggest republics in the world. And Clemenceau regards Lloyd George as one of the most radical democratic politicians of his day. And so for Clemenceau, the idea really at Versailles is not simply to do the Germans down, but to permanently anchor a kind of anticipation of NATO, a North Atlantic security structure based on the French Republic, Britain's emerging liberal democracy and the United States. Lloyd George is commonly seen by people like Clemenceau as perhaps the most imaginative democratic politician of his day. So when we say that he's a vote-maximising politician, that's simply to state the obvious, or rather to say that he's playing a system that he's largely created. Lloyd George is responsible perhaps more than any other uh, British statesman for shaping the constitution of Britain through the 20th century into the 21st century. It's Lloyd George who introduces full manhood suffrage, a large element of female suffrage, a large elements of the welfare state, the progressive tax system who breaks the House of Lords before 1914. And so when he goes to Versailles in pursuit of reparations, it's not just a sort of vote grasping selfish politics, it's also trying to find a way to pay for the welfare state after World War One. So when he asks for pensions to be covered, he's the guy who invented pensions. So this isn't just a politician playing within the parameters of the existing system. This is a revolutionary trying to secure the framework of his revolution under the massive strains imposed by 
the war. And one who then in foreign policy also turns out to be spectacularly imaginative. On the one hand, pushing like the French for an alliance with the United States. Britain comes away from the Versailles Peace Treaty with what it was most in what was most important, namely a naval, a sort of naval concordat, a kind of naval agreement with the United States, which is then consolidated in 1921, which is from the British point of view radical in the sense that it admits that Britain will no longer be the absolutely dominant naval power. So for it's almost a Gorbachev-style move in which the dominant military power concedes on grounds of higher political reason, partnership or equality to another state. And then goes on throughout the 1920s, all the way through to the end of his premiership at the end of 22, to restlessly search for new diplomatic mechanisms for pacifying Europe. So I came away from this, the research with really radically new view of, of all of the three principal protagonists and one that was far more appreciative, really, of both the scale of the problems that they faced and the radicalism and imagination with which these early 20th century Democrats face those challenges. To my mind, really, we misunderstand the trajectory of democracy in the modern period. If we think of, as it were, a gradual ascent to greater and greater democracy, there is a strong case to be made, I think, for the early 20th century as being perhaps the high point of democratic statesmanship in the face of really spectacular odds. That was Adam Tews. The Deluge, The Great War and the Remaking of the Global Order, 1916 to 1931, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And you'll find a review of the book in our June issue, which is on sale now. Also this month, James Holland considers the successes and failures of D-Day, Derek Wilson explores a Tudor murder mystery, and Admiral Lord West reveals the Royal Navy's impact on the 20th century. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents and digitally. Plus, don't forget that tickets are currently on sale for our 2014 History Weekend Festival. It's taking place from the 16th to the 19th of October in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury and features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors and broadcasters. For more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the festival website, historyweekend.com. And a few talks have already sold out, so please do get hold of your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it, so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. The diaries of Cabinet member Lewis Harcourt, which reveal the behind-the-scenes discussions in the build-up to the First World War, are to be published for the first time. Scribbled on the back of Foreign Office telegrams, as well as neat pieces of paper written up after meetings, the notes, taken between 1914 and 15, reveal the inner workings of a Cabinet under pressure, as well as the snide remarks made among rivals, the Telegraph reports. The papers were stored by Harcourt's family after his death in 1922 and have been seen only by a handful of academics. They were transferred to Oxford University in 2008, where they have been catalogued. Now, nearly a 100 years after they were written, they will go on show in an exhibition at the university and in a new book, From Downing Street to the Trenches, by Mike Webb. Meanwhile, forensic scientists looking for the body of one of Spain's most important literary figures, Miguel de Cervantes, say that they have found five possible sites at a Madrid church. The author of Don Quixote died in 1616 and his burial was recorded at the convent of Trinitarians in Spain's capital, but the exact location is unknown. BBC News reports that a team of experts used infrared cameras, 3D scanners and ground-penetrating radar to pinpoint the possible burial sites at a Madrid church. The work of exhuming and analysing any findings is expected to take several months. If human bones are found, forensic scientists will rely on the author's physical characteristics as documented in portraits or in his own stories to identify his remains. In other news, a new book has uncovered the rural backdrop to Jane Austen's life, letters and novels. Written by expert Deirdre Le Fay, Jane Austen's country life reveals how being a farmer's daughter influenced Jane's romantic novels. In it, Le Fay illustrates how Jane spent 33 of her 41 years in the Hampshire countryside and argues that this first-hand knowledge of country life underpins her writings and gives the time frame against which she constructs her plots. You can read more about this story at historyextra.com. Thanks for that, Emma. In the June issue of BBC History magazine, we began a new series called Our First World War, which tells the story of the conflict through the voices of those who lived through it. For our iPad edition, we're accompanying the text with excerpts from oral interviews that were produced by the Imperial War Museum in later decades. And I'm pleased to say that we're also able to include some clips in the podcast. For the first instalment, we return to June 1914, when despite the assassination of Franz Ferdinand that month, war did not yet loom large for many people. First off, let's hear from William Collins. Aged 20 in June 1914, 
he was already part of the armed forces, having joined the Royal Army Medical Corps the previous year. Here, during a 1986 interview, he talks about the reputation of the corps that he served with. What about the army's reputation uh, before the war? Was it, was it seen as a, uh, as a place where ne'er-do-wells ended up, or was the Royal Army Medical Corps seen as better? Or? The, more, the Royal Army Medical Corps, in my opinion, was an exception to the average infantry battalion. Uh, the, <laughs> the fact that they wrote for my character to my previous employer tells you that they were not interested in taking every, any Tom, Dick and Harry, you see. But I, I think the, uh, the, the, the infantry, uh, some of them were a very tough bunch. For instance, at the foot of the hill, down from, as we go into Aldershot from McGregor Barracks, there were the first King's Liverpool Regiment. And believe, Liverpool Irish, and believe me, a tougher bunch never walked this face of this earth. I mean, not they, they were absolutely magnificent soldiers, but they were very tough men. You, we used to walk the other side of the road when we got men. I used to always walk the opposite side of the road when I passed the King's Barracks. They were very tough lads, they were. But mops, what soldiers? What soldiers? So the, the, your parents didn't mind so much because of, of the, the reputation. You talked earlier about esprit de corps. You, you obviously had a lot of that uh, oh. even before the war. Uh, 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 oh, yes. Uh, you see, uh, when, when our football team played away, if you know, had a, an important match away, uh, we used to, uh, the, the 40 or 50 of us used to go, da go down to see them play and, watch, pa and pay the train fare to see them play. Oh, it was, a, it was, there was a lot of esprit de corps there. Was the esprit de corps to the company, the uh, A company, or to the depot, or was it to the RAMC oh, I think, generally? Or, I think uh, it was to the RAMC generally. You see, we were taught, one of the first, when I joined, one of the first things that happened was that Captain Locke explained our cap badge to us. You see? He, the first thing was he drew the cap badge and said that this is your cap badge. And in the, there's a Latin motto at the foot, in arduis fidelis, faithful in difficulties. That's the, uh, the, the translation from the Latin. And it's a, uh, that, that's, that's the esprit de corps. In arduis fidelis, faithful in difficulties. In other words, you were there to look after other people and to be faithful to them. That's why, that's why that, that used to drum itself into me on the battlefield. I used to say, say to myself very often, boy, you've got to live up to your cap badge. You, that's what you've got to live up to. No matter how afraid you are, you've got to live up to your cap badge. And it helped. That was William Collins. And now let's hear from Dolly Shepherd. Dolly was 27 years old in June 1914, and she had recently retired from her job as a professional parachutist. In an excerpt from a 1975 interview, she recalls her experiences of leaping from a hot air balloon. Can you remember your first balloon ascent? The oh, very yeah. first time you went up. Oh, yes, I jumped off the basket. So you were not attached? Oh, no, no. This not that old. That you was when I used to go up the alone then. Oh, I was quite experienced then. I could go up alone. Oh, no, the first time you go up when, when there's going to be a right-of-way ascent and then you just slip off the basket, off the edge of the basket, because there's no basket there. Is the one You can see that basket in the other. Yes. Can you see the basket? Well, yes. you sit on the... Yes, well, you sit on the edge, you see, hanging onto a rope. Well, hanging onto the rope, no balancing, as you'd sit on a chair like that. And then he'd say, go, and you just go. Away you go. 
Did someone else go up in the basket with you then? Oh, well, you couldn't go up in the basket alone, not if you were going to make a parachute stint, because of the basket. It had to be, um, when you jumped off, it always had to be from a right-of-way ascent, what you call a right-of-way. What does that mean? Uh, when they're going to sail away somewhere. They're either going to take passengers or they want to go a long distance. And then you jump off. Or in this other case, I was hanging underneath. So they were going to take passengers. They'd probably land 20 or 30 miles away, take them for a ride. Why couldn't you just go up with one other person in the basket and then he would go down and you would jump off? Well, he could. I mean, uh, what do you mean? Slipping off the basket or going underneath? Well, I wondered why you said there had to be a right-of-way. That's, that's what we call a right-of-way. A right-of-way is in a basket. A right-of-way means that it goes right-of-way. You see... The balloon either, goes right-of-way. Yes. At, at one time, um, not in this time, but once, Gordon went to Russia. So, I mean, I wouldn't like to go to Russia with him. <laughs> he took Bennett with him, I think, then, in that time. But uh, in that... Oh, no, you couldn't go up... See, the only time you can go up alone is when you're going to make it like that. You must be just just alone then, and you're alone in the wide, wide world. And when you're alone, hanging under the balloon, mm -hmm. you pull the ripcord, yes. and the balloon is then destroyed. When you pull the ripcord, you, that pulls the balloon almost in half, and the sandbag pulls the balloon down, and you come down like this, you see. Yes. And in those days, the parachutes were just made as parachutes. But no, you had to twist your hand around and guide it a bit this way and this way. You couldn't say that you were coming down in a particular spot. You had to go where the wind took you, see. I mean, I've been on top of chimney, you know, on top of a house, over trees, maybe on an express train. That driver had some... Uh, he, he had some one, some forethought. He blew the uh, blew the steam and just blew me off into the canal at Grantham. Oh yes, oh yes, that was quite a quite a nice time. That was Dolly Shepherd being interviewed by the Imperial War Museum. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read the first instalment of our First World War in the June issue of the magazine. And we'll be bringing you more excerpts as the series progresses in the months to come. Well, that's almost all for this week. As always, do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. As well as email, you can also keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra and on Facebook, we're also History Extra. Plus, do make sure to check out our website, historyextra.com, for the latest history news, galleries, quizzes, articles, and also previous episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007. Next week, we'll be talking about the history of gardens, and as the World Cup's on, we'll have a little bit of football history too. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. <laughs>